0: Hi everyone, it's Indy. Welcome to Lady in the Stacks, Episode 8. In this podcast, we meet interesting and engaging library staff and have thought-provoking discussions about the dynamics of libraries, issues affecting libraries and their patrons, and thoughts about the future of the field. Today we're talking to Miranda Doobie. She's an adjunct faculty librarian at the University of New Hampshire, Manchester. Today, she'll share with us the results of her research into library services for survivors of sexual assault and domestic violence and provide a basis of understanding regarding how vital it is for libraries to offer resources for these patrons. So Miranda, tell us about yourself, anything you feel comfortable sharing with us.
1: Yeah, so uh, I got my undergrad degree in communication arts, but it was a little bit of a struggle for me to get that undergraduate degree. Um, And it's all ties in to how I ended up with my research focus that I have now, um, which is why I'm mentioning it. So in the process of getting my undergraduate degree, I um, got diagnosed. It's actually not going to be five years to the day when the podcast listeners listen to this, but five years to the day of when we recorded this, um, I got diagnosed with borderline personality disorder and PTSD, which kind of derailed my undergraduate degree a little bit. I took some time off to focus on getting myself better and doing intensive therapy um, and all of those good things to get myself well. And when I was well, I went back, Uh, but it had kind of derailed or not derailed, but reshifted my focus on what I wanted out of life, what my priorities were. And when it finally came to the day that I graduated my undergraduate degree, I wasn't entirely sure what I wanted to do with my life. And so I obviously needed a job and I needed to uh, pay bills and all of that fun stuff of being an adult. But I wasn't comfortable with going back into like a retail job. I wanted to do something that gave back and had purpose. And so I joined AmeriCorps Victim Assistance Program, which was a statewide program in my home state to work with survivors of domestic violence and sexual assault. Uh, So I did that for a year. And during the time that I was doing that was when I decided to go back to library school Um, or not go back, but go to library school and get my master's degree. I had worked as a student worker in my uh, college's library when I was in undergrad and I really enjoyed it. And I think taking this step out of that really made me recognize that that was a profession and it was a profession that I wanted to be in more than just the capacity of a student worker. And so I got my degree and kind of the rest, I guess is history. Now I'm here (laughs) with all my research.
0: It's it's so interesting. Um, and I, I actually had discussed this with someone I had interviewed um, earlier in the week, and, and it's come up in other interviews, how so much of our past experience shapes um, who we are as people, but also who we are as librarians and sort of the path that we that we take to to get there. Um, and I think that definitely sounds like that um, was the case with you as well. Um. Absolutely so i understand you've been doing research on library services for victims of domestic and sexual violence what have you found what should libraries be doing differently in this regard Um, have you come across any remarkable library services that address these issues
1: yeah so those are all really great questions um so so far for findings i have completed one study the results are going to be published um, soon june in june so about another two months Um, and that research really focused on new hampshire public libraries because that was a feasible task and it started as a uh, independent study during my master's program and so uh, being a student and a new professional, I didn't want to take on, you know, more than I thought I could easily handle and produce something worthy out of it. So I really honed in my focus to New Hampshire public libraries, and it has been eye-opening to see the way that public librarians talk about survivors in, our, in my state, um, the services that they're doing, the amazing work that's being done, but also how far we still have to go. So I talk about this a lot when I give uh, presentations at conferences and things like that. And on Twitter, it's really great that we have so many librarians doing so much great work. But all it takes is someone in our profession who is... Either uneducated or unwilling to acknowledge that these are problems to really cause harm in an entire community, mm-hmm. um, especially when a public library is such a hub of mm-hmm. community, especially in small towns. Um, it, for a lot of people in small towns, especially in like rural New Hampshire, that's where they have their internet access and things like that. So they're, uh, you know, a really populated place. And I had librarians. Not only responding to my survey, but sending me emails with their name and which library they worked out saying some really um, harmful things. Like Really? Yeah. Like, this isn't a problem in our small town.
0: How, well, would, they, how would they know?
1: Right. And the other part is... It's a problem in every town. It doesn't matter what size your town is. Uh, Domestic violence and sexual assault don't discriminate against anyone. They can impact anyone of any age, gender, ethnicity, uh, socioeconomic status. And so for that specific comment and for a lot of the other comments I received, it took me a while to one, not take it personally and two, try and focus on how we could uh, help these librarians become aware of the issues and kind of, as a community of librarians help each other to kind of rise above and be the best advocates we can be for our patrons who are experiencing violence. And so as I reflected on these comments that I was receiving from librarians, which ranged from this isn't a problem to it's a problem, but I don't have enough time to do it, or this is a problem for someone else. um, It's a defense mechanism. And we do it a lot when we talk about survivors, um, especially of sexual assault. We ask things like, what were they wearing? How much did they have to drink? Why were they walking alone at night? And we ask these questions because if we can identify something that a survivor did wrong, um, our brain then lets us kind of categorize it as, well, if I always make sure that I'm not drinking and I always walk with a buddy and I don't go home with strange people, then I will always be safe. And it's just not true because anyone can be assaulted. Anyone can experience domestic violence, but it's a protective measure of saying, well, I will just make sure I don't do these things. And then this bad thing won't happen to me. And I think that's kind of what's occurring with some of the librarians is I don't want to acknowledge that this is a problem because then I have to figure out how I'm going to handle it, not only professionally, but personally. And perhaps I have my own trauma that I'm trying to work through and, you know, process and handle. And so it's just this, it creates a barrier between us and the issue of servicing these patrons. Um, and so when I reframed it like that, it gave me a little bit more compassion, um, and helped me kind of focus on creating positive change for that.
0: Right. So was it like an education process with them to, like, how did you educate them about the importance of these services and the the prevalence of this, even though it they not may not, it may not be in their face every day, you know, because it's, it strikes me as, they're. I would think for some patrons there, there may be a sense of shame that goes with that. And I can only speculate um, and to sort of, you know, deal with that mentality of not just, well, if, you know, if we can't see it, then it must not be going on. And also sort of dealing with that. Well, like you were to, to, to what you were speaking of, you know, well, they, they deserved it. You know, it's kind of like that unsaid, well, you know right you know and 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 that's a that's a huge cultural societal problem too but libraries are microcosms Um, and so it's frightening to think that that is the mentality of some people Um, you know if you don't know about something especially if you're a librarian you the first thing you do is educate yourself about it not make excuses right (laughs)
1: um so side anecdote on us educating ourselves one of the other things that i asked about in my survey was what percentage of staff the people answering the surveys which were sent to library directors or in the case of some really small towns that don't have those either the next in command or the library trustees um I asked them what percentage of employees they thought knew where their local crisis center was and also if they what percentage they thought could find that information if they didn't and three percent of my respondents um, and it was the same three percent didn't think any of their librarians knew where their local crisis center was and didn't think that those staff members knew how to find that information Uh, which is it was not a lot of libraries but it was enough that I was kind of like, oh, okay, this is a skill set that I take for granted because I have the background in it. I know where to go to find that information. But maybe it's an assumption I'm making that other people know how to navigate this system like I do because it is very complex and there's a lot of different organizations that offer different services and things like that. Um, but my my number one tip, if I can give any number one tip, is to get educated and figure out where your local crisis center is. Um, because they are going to be the people who can help you navigate that education process and figure out how to do maybe some workplace trainings. And I know I can only speak to New Hampshire on this, but most of them um, here, you can have someone come in usually at low to no cost to train um, your staff members on a variety of issues that might be related, Um, whether that's, you know, safety planning or Um, how to handle restraining orders, what books and resources are helpful, what services they can provide, things like that. Um, So, yeah, I guess my biggest thing is just know where your local crisis center is. It really is the best tool that we can offer survivors because... And this is one thing I try to be really clear about with kind of my movement, if we can call it a movement, is that I don't expect every librarian out here to go become as educated as a crisis center advocate. Um, Takes a lot of training. I actually just got recertified to be an on-call advocate. I spent three full weekend days, um, and about 20 hours of online training, like it's intensive. And so it would be unrealistic to expect that every librarian everywhere is going to get that kind of information. But if you know where your local crisis center is, you can turn someone who needs help over to the people who are really, really qualified to do that. Um, And the key part is that we need to know that beforehand, Um, someone did a study, Evans and Fetter, I believe, I hope I'm not misquoting them, (laughs) I'm 98% sure that's who did the study, Um, that when informal disclosures of abuse are made to an informal network, um, so that might be a library, They are most successful in getting the person making the disclosure to formal services if the person who is receiving the disclosure has prior knowledge of what resources are available. So while it's really great that we know how to look up information and we could say, oh, it sounds like you need the local crisis center, let me look it up. Um, that will often lead to less access of the formal services than if we can say immediately, this is the the crisis center that services our area. Would you like their phone number or their email and have that information ready?
0: I had never considered the library to be um, an informal, part of an informal network. Um, So, and that makes perfect sense um, now that you've mentioned it. Um, and, And I think that, you know, for, I would want my reception of that kind of request to be, um, you know, open-hearted. And if I have something to give them, then, you know, that's what I would wanna do. And I I, I take your point to heart that I can find that information. And, and I may actually know library staff where I work that has this information um, because we have a lot of different um, resource lists, but, you know, there, there are some we use frequently, like careers and, and, right. and stuff like that. And then there's some that we, we don't use as frequently. Um, and I think, too, for people who we're not therapists. So if we're dealing with a patron who is expressing those needs, rather than feel powerless, we have something we can give them.
1: Exactly. I was uh, talking to someone earlier today about something that had occurred at their library and part of what one of the librarians was feeling was that powerlessness and the frustration at I need to get these services to someone because they really need them, but there just was no safe way for me to do it. Mm. It was a really complex situation. But it's a valid feeling because we want to help and we want to provide that information. And sometimes, especially when we're talking about victims of domestic and sexual violence, like it's just not safe for us to do it. They might not be ready to have that information. Um, There's a lot of different reasons why that might not be possible. But when we do have the opportunity to, you know, successfully get someone to where they need to be, it's a really, really great feeling.
0: I would imagine, too, that even if they don't take that information. That doesn't mean that they won't at a later date. And you now you've established that you are a place where they can go, and exactly. And you have that sort of connection. And so it, you know, it's okay. You're going to be there um, as a resource for them when when they're ready. Um, yeah, I can only imagine the type of constraints that people deal with in terms of using that information. Um, so so. What are libraries doing well?
1: Uh, There are a lot of really great programming type things that are happening, like in New Hampshire um, specifically are some examples that I can um, discuss. And I'm sure there are other fabulous things happening in other states as well. Um, One thing that occurs across the United States Uh, During Sexual Assault Awareness Month, which just passed, is a thing called the Clothesline Project. And I had the opportunity to participate in it when I was in AmeriCorps, and it was really, really powerful. Um, It is an event where survivors are invited to decorate T-shirts in a way that either expresses um, their empowerment or the violence they experienced, a message that they wanna leave for other survivors. Um, It can really be a wide range of things. And I was uh, lucky enough that I was able to actually take this project into our local women's prison and work with some women who are incarcerated as a direct result of the abuse that they faced um, and give them a opportunity to have a voice in this project. Um, And so those t-shirts are displayed Uh, at the end of the project around the state. And there are, I know, at least one library that invites the Clothesline Project to come and display at their library so it becomes part of their community events Mm -hmm. that you can come and you can read these t-shirts that survivors have written messages on and they've talked about their experience on and they've decorated. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's a really great way to, one, bring awareness to the issue, but two, to kind of provide it in a safe way. it's a lot less challenging or threatening to people who are just beginning to kind of tiptoe into this subject and kind of open their mind to educating um, themselves and becoming more aware. It's easier to read some stories on a T-shirt than it is to maybe have survivors in your library talking, doing like a Q&A right. um, or something else that's a little bit more Um, specific program that's happened. Another library in our state is offering meeting space for survivors who need to meet with a crisis center advocate. And in our state, there are some crisis centers whose shelter and office are in the same building. And so it's a huge safety issue with offering in-person services there um, because it jeopardizes the safety of people who are living in shelter. And so sometimes it can be challenging for victims who are not living in shelter to gain access to those in-person services. And so one library partnered with their crisis center Mm -hmm. and the crisis center advocate makes a reservation for the room under their personal name with no identification tying them to the crisis center and they enter through the back door of the building so they enter very privately it's not um, obvious to anyone that they're entering the building and the survivor can walk in through the front doors it appears to anyone that they are just going to their local library to check out some books and they can safely meet with an advocate in the private meeting room Um, and then when they're done they both exit the same way they came in so Mm -hmm. there's no um, way that someone could see right. them talking or see that an advocate came in or know that they were even an advocate from the crisis center. And it's just a really great way that they're offering um, their space for a safety issue that kind of needed to be worked around.
0: So um, so that's a great example of what libraries are doing. Um, you, you did provide a tip about knowing where your crisis center is, What other what other tips would you give a library who says, in essence, yes, we want to be doing more um, to help those in our community, uh, because sometimes they're invisible and we can't see what's going on. So how do we create programs that may not only serve people who come seeking those services, but may be inviting to people who might be hesitant to sort of open that door,
1: so to speak? Yeah, Uh, so one of the things that I like to say is to create survivor-inclusive programming rather than survivor-specific programming. Um, Because if we create survivor-specific programming, we're really asking survivors not only to come to our event but also to out themselves as a survivor. Right. Whereas if we can create inclusive programming You never know. And the survivor gets the benefit of whatever that program is. So one example of how that might work is, say, you're doing some type of art therapy project or craft or something like adult coloring book night. And when you're marketing it to your community, We all do our little mock-ups. Oh, do you want to reduce stress? Do you want to have fun? Do you just want to come hang out? Do you want to awaken your inner child? It's really easy to throw another sentence in there that's, you know, do you have some... Art therapy is great at working through trauma. Like, you can throw in what I kind of refer to as like signal lines and it signals to a survivor that you're inclusive, that you are aware of them as a population and that you're welcoming of them at your programming. Um, But that it's also a safe place for them to come because it's not, you know, all survivors of domestic violence and sexual assault come color tonight at the library. It's like, it's, you can weave it in um, with any type of programming. And it's really just about creating this, open and welcoming atmosphere and one of the um, survey respondents that I got from a New Hampshire librarian was that they had been in the field for 18 years and they never had a disclosure so therefore they must not exist and I was at a previous job for almost two years and I got three disclosures and I don't know this other librarian but I'm going to be willing to bet that since they shared some other responses in the way that they shared them that they probably talk about these issues publicly that way. Hmm. Um, And survivors are deciding before they even talk to us if they trust us and if we are a safe person to talk to. So the more that we can be engaged in our community and sharing our openness and willingness to be of service and to listen and to be compassionate, uh, the more likely they are going to interact with us and come to us when they do need help on those sensitive topics, or they need a referral to the crisis center, or they, need to teach their kid about what they just went through. Maybe their children witnessed domestic violence, and they are coming to the library for resources on how to talk to their child about that. Mm. Um, So being kind of just that positive, open atmosphere for them, and throwing in those extra little signal lines when we do programming can really make a world of difference in letting someone know that we are a safe spot for them.
0: Right, right, that's incredibly helpful. So if you weren't doing this, what do you think you'd be doing? It's kind of an, I I, I find it really interesting because sometimes when I ask someone if they weren't a librarian, what would they be doing? There's generally some overlap that they're sometimes not aware of. Um, Yes. And and so when you were getting your undergraduate degree, you really weren't sure, you know, what you wanted to do. Yeah. What kinds of things were you thinking about doing and how different were they from what you're doing now?
1: So I think, um, I don't think that I will ever, I'm going to answer the question, but side anecdote. (laughs) That's fine. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, I think I was really meant to be a librarian and it sounds silly to some people and other people are like, oh yes, but my mother was I'm an oh yes
0: person. Oh, definitely.
1: My mom worked at a book publisher while she was pregnant with me. And I think that that just solidified it for me. Like it's been in my blood since I was, you know, growing. (laughs) And so it's just, I've always been attached to books and information. And I love my job and I love that I get to put my best qualities into a job. I'm not at a job that kind of brings out, you know, my worst qualities or anything like that. Like I really am my best when I'm librarian status um but with that said i have considered other careers when i took my semester off um for my mental health diagnosis i also started the process of um sobriety and so i considered going into that realm as well um prior to recognizing that you know librarianship was really where i wanted to be i thought about working at uh, recovery center or perhaps in mental health, but there is that common theme of all of these are about helping other people, um, you know, recover. Mm -hmm. And so possibly something like that. Hmm. But I also, uh, was (laughs) thinking about this today. If I gave kind of a half serious dream job answer, I would probably run the Scholastic book fairs.
0: I love it. Oh my God. Because let's
1: be real. Those are magic.
0: (laughs) They are. Um, I I got to co-chair my son's, um, middle grade book fair. I had always volunteered at the elementary level and it's very different at the middle grade level. And I like middle grade. So it was so much fun because I like middle grade. Um, you know, they're, they're not so into, you know, sitting there and help having you help them pick books They you know, they pretty much know what they want. Um, but yeah, I, I saw somewhere someone had written that they were always chasing the high of a scholastic book fair. And I could definitely relate to that. And, um, I've, I've, I often fantasize about um, getting an RV when I retire and just doing story times all over the country.
1: (laughs) That (laughs) would be so lovely.
0: (laughs) Because I just love story times. I love reading. I love um, creating those good experiences around reading. And I don't think that I will ever not be that person. So when you say that you were sort of meant to be a librarian, I came into it later in life. I I have a background in marketing and um and yes there's definitely a lot of overlap and it's interesting because you know when you're a mental health therapist um I had considered social work you're you're dealing with sometimes very longer term problems and one of the reasons that I'm more comfortable as a librarian is I'm dealing with shorter term problems in the sense that my interactions with with a patron are not lengthy. They may come back in, I might see them, but we're not, I, I have to be able to give them something that will get them to the next step or right solve their problem. And so I'm better geared towards sort of that shorter term than I would be longer term.
1: It's interesting that you say that because now you have me reflecting as well because I think, you know, for, people listening, they probably were expecting me to say that I would go be a full-time advocate. Um, But I've been there and I've done that and it didn't work well for me. I'm not a good fit for it. It's a really big emotional toll. I had a really um, challenging and stressful year working in a prosecutor's office. I lost a victim. I had victims who absolutely just hated me and would like scream obscenities in my face. Um, I had, you know, victims who really wanted the help and recovered and did really well um, with what we were able to offer them. But like, I carry all of those people with me. And I think part of it is because it was such a long term process. Courts move so slowly, I was in these people's lives for a really long time. Um, Whereas now, like, especially as an on-call advocate, I get a phone call in the middle of the night and that's kind of the end of it unless they happen to call when I'm on shift again. And I know that they have been turned over to the you know, full-time staff at the crisis center and they are in the right hands and they are being taken care of. But just that extra like long-term load on me of taking care of them was a lot. And so I think similarly, I'm just better suited for those shorter interactions. I perform my best then. So
0: you you speak a lot at conferences. Um, you are very involved uh, in this cause. What do you do when you're not? What do you do to relax? What kind of hobbies do you have?
1: Yeah, so if anyone who is listening also um, has experience with borderline personality disorder, you may know that having hobbies is a weird thing for people with BPD. Um, and it kind of links back to this. Uh, one of the diagnostic criteria that we have a ever evolving and non-stable sense of self. So for my whole life, I've struggled with hobbies. Um, when I was a kid, like I was always jumping from basketball team to track to Um, violin like I I was always doing these different things because nothing felt right and now that I have the tools and the skills to be you know a little bit more recovered um, I've finally been able to experience the joy of having hobbies and so I've really gotten into crochet I started Mm -hmm. that um, a year and four months ago. And so, so far, this is my longest running hobby. I haven't lost interest in it. So that's really exciting. Um, and the people out there with BPD will know what I mean when you can just keep something consistent for that long. It's really, it's a huge accomplishment. So I love crochet. Um, I love to make cute little outfits for my niece and nephew and blankets and It's summertime. So I'll start making some um, like tank tops and things like that. And then I've also gotten into baking recently and cooking. And um, it was always a chore to me before. And now I'm really enjoying finding new recipes and trying new food and just being really playful with that. And that has been super helpful in, you know, maintaining a healthy relationship with my body and food and getting back to a spot where it's like enjoyable so i'd have to say those are the two big things right now is crochet and baking slash cooking
0: if knowing what you know now what advice would you give yourself if you could go back or if it's easier or preferable what advice would you give someone who was just starting out who came to you and said i think i want to be a librarian what kind of advice would you give
1: so I think if I had to go back and talk to a early version of myself, I don't know if it would necessarily be advice. Um, but I did kind of impulsively jump into getting my master's degree. I just decided that I was gonna do it and I applied um, but I had a lot of fear around it so I think I would just go back and remind myself my young you know younger self that it was all gonna work out fine and that the life that I dreamed of having I'm trying not to get emotional (laughs) and so emotional that I can't finish the sentence um that the life I dreamed of having would find me and it would find me a lot faster than I thought it was going to happen Mm. um because I think I lost a lot of that early time to fear and Mm. fear of not being good enough not being a good enough librarian not being smart enough to get a master's degree because I I was freshly out of therapy. I was still really early in my sobriety. Um, I was dealing with a lot of, you know, the emotional baggage that I had throughout life. Um, so all of those doubts, um, had surfaced. And I think I lost a lot of time and opportunity to really just enjoy the ride here. Um, cause every day I wake up and I have no idea how I've ended up with, The life I have and being married and being happy and healthy and stable and having a career that I love and doing work that I'm super passionate about and being surrounded by really strong women who push me to be my best self um, and really strong men who are fabulous and um, supportive and wonderful. And just, you know, I wish that I could go back and say, enjoy the ride, because it's going to happen a lot faster than you thought it would.
0: That is wonderful advice. So I just want to thank you so much for joining us and uh, taking the time to uh, share your story with us and talk more about this very important topic and the tips that you have given all of us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: If you'd like to find out more about Miranda, you can follow her on Twitter, and I'll include this information in the podcast notes. I'm also including the hashtag librarians for survivors so that you can follow along with the conversation on this most important topic. Thank you very much for joining us. And until next time, I'll be seeing you in the stacks.